They're not fake glasses. They are quay blue light glasses because I'm always staring at screens all day. They help with eye strain. So fake Yuck. glasses. So fake glasses. They're not fake <laughs> <laughs> And I fake have glasses. a very studious wig. Like I'm, you know, from a different world. I'm, at, I'm going to a historically black institution. Well, there's just a whole lot we could. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's a whole lot we could discuss there, but okay. <laughs> you even, well, what's the name? What's the name of that school from from different world? Oh, black girls who love wow. Bono University. Oh my god. <laughs> another episode of black Frasia for you and as always i'm joined in the studio by my co-producer my editor the love of my life and i'll keep it i'll keep it professional because today's episode is like it's a serious one yeah yeah um and this is Something new because we're recording our tops and bottom. Speaking of bottoms, <laughs> uh, I'm currently not wearing any underwear. Uh, any, bot- any pants, sorry. Well, oh my God, I was like, what? <laughs> you have your uncircumcised dong out oh here in the streets? So it lasted a good solid two minutes of keeping it clean then. You're European. <laughs> Everyone already knew. I seem to have lost my trousers is what I was trying to say. <laughs> You're European. Everyone knows what you have going on downstairs. Thank they you. They don't say it, but they know. They go, turtleneck time, 24-7 for you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but we're taping our tops and bottom during the evening. Mm. So, you know, if you're listening to this, maybe take off your top. And your bottom, unless you're my family, in which case, keep your clothes on, put a parka on, a hat, some snow gloves, <laughs> snow boots, <laughs> ski goggles. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited, babe. I feel like I'm fully, I've been 36 for almost a month now. How does it feel? And, you know, it feels great. Feels exactly the same as 35? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm like, I don't have any gray pubes. Things are fine. Oh, you're lucky. (laughs) 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 
Uh, but yes, I'm enjoying being 36. Um, it feels, I don't feel like I have any more wisdom. Mm. But I think that I'm trying to be kinder to myself. That's good. That's important. Because I could be hypercritical. Yeah. Of yourself, <laughs> not of other people, we should say. Your face, though. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, you're, you have a birthday coming up, mister. I do. December 13th. You're going to be 32. I know. How are you feeling about your, you're in your thirds, your early thirds still, mm-hmm. still. Yeah. And do you feel like you've changed at all since you've been in your 30s? Hmm. No, I was, I was a very mature early 20s, 20, 20s. What are you trying to say? When I was in my early 20s, okay. I was very mature <laughs> for my age. And I feel that that's just carried on all the mm. way through until my 30s. So mm-hmm. it really doesn't feel like any different for me with these, but like these past mm-hmm. few birthdays. Even when I turned thirty, I didn't yeah. even feel anything. <laughs> Not in a like a dead inside kind <laughs> no, of way. No, that was a very like... <laughs> British thing to have zero emotions about anything. <laughs> I mean, yes, you are very mature. As we started dating when you were twenty-seven, mm-hmm. but I feel like. There's been an uptick in video games since we started dating. Why has that happened? I think it's because I've got uh, more time at home now. <laughs> I've got more time to do the things I want. Mm, mm-hmm. And if that means clicking that mouse button 500 times an hour, then I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. I'm just like... Here's the here's thing in our relationship. Like, we each have our vices. Yeah. Oh! Do I order 10 books a week? Yes. A week? A day? Not a day. A week. I do one order per week. But do right. I not? I'm almost at, uh, I'm currently reading my 48th book of the year. I wouldn't say that's your vice, though. Oh, is it the U2 stuff? Whenever I get like U2. I mean, that's one of them. (laughs) Oh, I didn't even tell you what's coming in the mail. Like, truly, this episode drops on Tuesday. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday, as you so lovingly said the other night. Right. Tuesday. So I do have something in the mail that I need to check. Okay. So, as you guys all know, it's the 20th anniversary of U2's All That You Can't Leave Behind album. I don't think that reached everyone, that news. (laughs) Um, I don't remember seeing it at the top of uh, Apple's daily news, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. I'm sure it's at least BuzzSpeed. Buzzsprout? No, Buzz, Buzz BuzzFeed's yeah. top 100 <laughs> news articles of today. Okay, I'm fairly certain that many a people knew about this. So they have... Handfuls of people. So my good friends, you two. You two and I. Yeah, my very close friends. <laughs> yes. Um... They have put out like a 20th anniversary edition of the album, and I ordered I ordered 
the vinyl box set the first day that the the presale was around. Mm. And so you get like the vinyls, you get the B-sides, you get um, <clears throat> a, a booklet of photos of like never before released by the band's photographer, Anta Corbin. And right. It comes as great boxing, like packaging. Right. And so that I'm so excited. That's great. We get to play it later on. Does it also come in digital format? Um, I think it came in vinyl and CD format. Mm. I was about to say we could just listen to it on Spotify then. So yes, YouTube and books are my two vices. What other vices do I have? Um what are you currently watching on Bravo TV right oh now? Oh my god, it's so good. Okay, so it's called the Okay, so this is a th- I wanted to feel a throwback to like a simpler time. Right. Um and when I was in call, that's college. Um <laughs> is, it, is it? I think that was a bit of a stretch, but please go on. Um this show, the Rachel Zoe project came out on Bravo and it really sort of pioneered in a lot of ways, like what reality TV is now. Um, And so I've been watching that and Rachel Zoe is a stylist and there's tons of drama because she has like these two styling associates and like, it's first of all, don't call them associates. They're your assistants. (laughs) We all like, they know that we know that you're only saying associates to make you sound like a law firm. That's what Rach calls them. Mm. So I just want to say, if you guys have the Bravo app and you want something light where you don't really have to think that much, you can also be scrolling your phone as you're watching it. Also, side note. Yes. Bravo really needs to update their app. (laughs) Yeah, their app is trash. It's terrible. It's so hard to like find anything on it. Do just do anything other than watch the Real Housewives episodes they want you to watch. Yeah, it's really, and I gotta say, I'm watching like three of the franchises, which is a lot. Anyway, if you're looking for some fashion moments, the show, uh, Rachel Zoe Project aired from 2008 to 2013. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. Rachel Zoe does not know who I am. <laughs> I'm getting no dollars no. from Bravo. No, I mean, they probably need to spend that money elsewhere, to be honest. <laughs> um, just, just looking... F- in from the outside. Uh-huh. Um, so just watch the Rachel Zoe project. So that's your major vice, I'd say, at the moment, is yes. trash reality TV show. Wow. So video games and trash TV. Okay, but you like your it's not just video games, it's always like this fucking conquering nations bullshit. Every game, he's like, oh, I'm at war with, like, you know, this... It's not con- every game, but the current game I am playing mm-hmm. is taking me back to my British heritage, for yeah, sure. The, 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 the colonizing? colonizing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So... Sorry? <laughs> the breaking news, as always, is we are an independent podcast. We are not taking ad dollars from the man. There's no Casper mattresses over here no blue aprons no what's the squirrel what's it what's the thing squirrel box no what is it squirrel box <laughs> what Squ- what's squirrel box <laughs> what is a squirrel no a squirrel uh, a flying mouse with a big tail squirrel oh my god 
<laughs> also, what squirrel box? I was. I, <laughs> I can't remember what the. Oh, Mailchimp. <laughs> I, get, I mean, I can see where you got confused. That's what I meant. I meant Mailchimp, not Squirrel Box. <laughs> we should start a company called Squirrel Box. So. <laughs> okay, the point is, you guys, we have merch that's helping pay for everything. So go to phoebeRobson.com slash merch. Get yourself a t-shirt. It's getting cold. Get yourself a freaking sweatshirt. Sizing small to triple XL. They're very cute. Tag us on Instagram once you get it. I was going to say, I've, lo- I've loved everyone's pictures that they've been sending in I with know. their merch. Oh, so cute. Mm. Should we do a merch that has your face on it eventually? Oh. What would you want your face to be on? Mugs. Oh, that's cute. It's like a mugshot. Hey. <laughs> okay, PhoebeRobinson.com slash match. Okay, guys, seriously, we need to get to the actual episode because yeah. this is a super-sized one. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interviewing Ijeoma Oluo, author of the... She's a New York Times bestselling author, but... Mm-hmm. She has a book that is available for pre-order now. I believe it comes out December 8th. It's called Mediocre. It is truly the best book I've read all year. And it talks about, you know, sort of the mediocrity of white maleness. Let's just get to, say, to it. I was going to ask you if you remember the full title. I don't. It's in, it's you in, just said it. Mediocrity of um, a white male. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, but that's not the proper like. Oh, OK. But it's basically about, you know. Basic ass bitches like myself. Yes. And it's really good. And then we also have someone really near and dear to me. My big bro, Philip Robinson Jr., who is currently in the last two weeks of his campaign for re-election for District 6 state rep in Ohio. I had a great chat with him yesterday. Y'all, he is out here in these streets. Hustling. Hustling. He's got his mask on. He's making sure all his volunteers are being safe. Mm-hmm. But he is truly showing up day in, day out to ensure that he keep his position so he can like continue to make an impact in local politics. And I thought that this would be a really great episode um, to have because, you know, I, I do feel like people are starting to feel voter fatigue. For sure. Um, I know I'm feeling myself, but I think on a local level where we're not just having to talk about number 45, I think that his conversation, my conversation with my brother, PJ, is really great because I think it helps for a lot of people to sort of see like, okay, these are exactly like what the issues are on the local level. Like, obviously, in Ohio, it might be different in, you know, Montana, Mm. but at least it gives you insight into like what the day to day is for a local politician. I think a lot of people get too distracted by the big politics of it all mm-hmm. especially with the, like today's news cycles where it's so fast paced mm-hmm. that the presidency and the supreme court just seems too far away for people to be able to connect while local politics is a lot more accessible mm-hmm. and it seems to be a lot more of a, a a much firmer grasp you can have on local politics than you can president's presidency and um yeah supreme court stuff like 
decisions. Mm-hmm. That was a real stutter to no, get that last bit No, you were out. so cute. I was just admiring your hair. Um, mm. But great point. <laughs> no, but that's a good point because it's like the local stuff is what's most directly affecting yeah. your life. Yeah. A lot of ways. So it's good to and like. And nobody really like remembers that. And it's not mm-hmm. ever touched upon in news about oh, yeah. uh, uh, the local yeah. politics. Yeah. Um, so I thought I had such a great time talking to both Ijeoma and PJ. Let's put it into one episode. Ijeoma, we talk about, you know, what's going on in Seattle, where she lives and just sort of like her work and all the things. And she's one of the most brilliant people I've ever encountered. I adore her so much. I like get giddy every time I text her. I'm just like, I'm such a fan. <laughs> oh, my God. She's probably like, oh, my God, Phoebe's so thirsty. Yeah, stop, but I, stop texting me. But I am a fan <laughs> of hers. I think what she's doing is so important. I feel like, you know, a lot of times um, the contributions of black women <clears throat> when in politics or just even sort of, you know, more like theory and mm. that it tends to get ignored. And so yeah. it's really good to sort of like she has this amazing platform. She certainly doesn't need me. But like, I just love like giving space to people who are really contributing mm-hmm. something incredible. So. All that is to say, this is a great episode. You guys are going to like it. It's serious, but there are moments of laughter. You could get that little bit of release. So I thought, let's kick things off with my conversation with my big bro, PJ. He's got lots to tell ya. Cheerio. Are we live? This is not night two of the DNC. We are not live, okay? <laughs> anyway, hi, Phil. Well, time out before we get started. Um... What? That was so great. What are you pausing for? For what? I just want to say I'm very proud of you. You were in. You had some good news articles this week. Oh, thank you. More I People magazine that. and Washington oh, Post. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. in WAPO. Does anyone call it WAPO? No, just you. <laughs> but congratulations on being the Washington Post. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, can we like get back to you because you are the star of this moment, not me? Okay. Hi, Phil. Hey, what's up? How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, you're not going to do that the whole show, but. Hey, what's up? <laughs> no, I'm really excited that you're doing Black Frasier because <clears throat> when we did our IG live, I want to say in in June, people really loved our conversation. They wanted more, especially because you are a local politician. We're going to get into that in a little bit. And I think now people are so ramped up. We're really close to the national election in November and people really are so invested in their communities and sort of having that insight from you about how local politics work. I wanted to have another conversation for the podcast. So that is why we're here today. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) You're literally the male version of my, both of you give me so little so little to work with and i'm just tap dancing away i'm like you like this you like this and you're just like right um that mug is very cute okay so i want to talk about local politics and activism with you today okay and i thought a good place to start would be sort of how 
I think for so many people, local politics is kind of mysterious in a way. Like you don't really know what people do and everyone's sort of like, when you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, I want to be president or I want to be vice president. It's not necessarily like I want to be city comptroller. And so what? I'm not, that's not a read. I'm just saying like you go for like the big things, right? Like the, the easily identifiable things when you're a kid. And so for me, I want to sort of talk about what you thought of, of politics when you were a kid growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, and you were like six or seven. Cause you used to wear the pin saying like, I want to be president of the United States one day. Like you were literally four years old in a suit with a little pin on saying vote for PJ. And I, so I want to just talk to you about that a little bit. No? Next time, next time I'm gonna screen the questions before we uh, <laughs> we get started. <laughs> this is a good question. Uh, Come on, it's an interesting question. No, I that was for career. That was for what do you want to be when you grow up or career day or something like that in school. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, no, I mean I I remember seeing Jesse Jackson doing the the Democratic National Convention. So <clears throat> that was the first time I saw someone look like me on TV mm-hmm. talking about politics. Um, or giving a speech. And so instead of going outside to play, I just watched that with my, uh, I think my dad was the one watching at the time. So that's how I I've kind of thought about it and, and got into it. And so I guess the rest is history so far as figuring out a way to go, uh, you know, get involved with public service. I, I agree with your analogy that apparently a state rep is like one of the pips and in, in not glad it's nice. But that, <laughs> that is because most people don't Let's say know who their state senator, state rep. Exactly. Is. That's like, for all. example, who's yeah. your state? Who's your you and British Bake Off? Don't state don't rep? turn this on me. We talking about you. <laughs> I asked the questions. Hassan Minhaj did this too. He was just like, "Let me ask you this. Let me ask you that." And I know what you're doing. You're going. You're the one being interviewed. Sir. Okay. Well, between the two of us, one of us has seen Frazier before. <laughs> <laughs> the other one has not. So, but that's okay. We can we can do it the way you want to do it. So yeah. So <laughs> you know, it's on know Netflix so many, now. It's on Netflix if you want to watch it. I know so many people are coming for me about it. I was like, British Bake Off has seen Frasier for the both of us, so I feel like I'm okay. But I think I'm gonna start watching it. I do. I do. Okay, but no, seriously, getting back okay. to your answer. So, what specifically? If you can remember, because sometimes, you know, as time passes, you more or less remember the feeling rather than the actual content of what was being said. But was there anything in particular that Jesse said that really sort of ignited a spark in you? Uh, I mean, I was so young back then. I mean, I don't know if it was so much what he said. It was just the fact mm-hmm. someone who looked like us who was on TV saying it. Um, and because up to then, I don't even remember who would have been president back then, but up to then it was usually really old white men. You know, and mostly mm-hmm. old white Republican men that you saw on TV. You didn't see him who looked like you. So when he was on stage, <clears throat> that was really interesting to see. And then you saw the audience, which was diverse in the convention hall. And then you started to think, oh, that's kind of cool. It'd be nice to figure out, could I do something like that one day? Uh, but okay. you know, when, when I went to college, I wasn't thinking about doing that. I was thinking about going to Wall Street. That's a whole other story. Ah! Cocaine and whores. Okay, so... <laughs> Not exactly what I said, but <laughs> I think it's more like work on Wall Street. But you know, it's all good. 
I'm kidding. You you you're not into that lifestyle. But no, seriously. Okay, so when you neither were, are you. What are you talking about? Like I know. <laughs> like, like I'm the nerdy one. Oh, you're not into that. You're not into that either. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I've never done coke. Um and I haven't fraternized with, you know, sex workers. Neither okay, have getting I. Back- Neither have I done either of those either. Just so we're clear on, on- Yeah. <laughs> okay, but okay, so you saw Jesse Jackson, mm-hmm. right? We were growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. We grew up in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You were really studious. You were such a great student, a student, always had your eye on the ball in terms of, you know, sort of reaching for your potential where I feel like I was a little bit of a slacker, right? So I remember, you know, like just walking through the living room and you would just be sitting there watching C-SPAN and like not even like C-SPAN 1. You'd be watching like C-SPAN 3 where there's Uh. like three old dudes in in a, you know, a library conference room being dry as hell. And you were like, this is the magic. I don't even know what to say to you. Number one, you know about C-SPAN <laughs> three again. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like, how how did you know about that? You must have watched because it. because I watched you oh, watch stop it. it stop. But um, well, you know, I I finished up as a good student, but starting out, I think you know, I probably had my fair share of ups and downs, especially when teachers don't know what to do with a lot of a lot of young boys of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, was able to get it together and. And I don't know, it's a way to learn, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of cable. We didn't really have cable growing up. So, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. when like we were at, the, at our at our at our dad's store or that was the main time I watched it on like work breaks and stuff like that. And yeah, it was a cool way to see how things work. That wasn't a spin. And it probably was good because you learn how stuff actually works versus what people tell you how things work, um, mm-hmm. which unfortunately, I think a lot of people grow up seeing right now on TV. Yeah. So I want to put a pin in that because I have one quick question before we get back into the C-SPAN of it all. So you touched on something which I think a lot of parents are dealing with, especially parents of color. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, notoriously you read about how the school system, um, there's these racial biases or biases. Biases? Rachel biases? Rachel bias? (laughs) Let's take a commercial break. She needs to uh, (laughs) consult. Her book and come back. She's written two bestsellers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's race, racial. There is racial bias. <laughs> this is so fun. Okay. okay. And so, you know, as a child, you, I think both of us had a lot of energy and you're, even to this day, you're a very curious person. You like mm-hmm. to know the ins and outs. You want to ask the questions because you like to know how everything works. And I think a lot of times in school, when children of color have a lot of energy and are very curious, that often gets misinterpreted as being disruptive. Yeah. And do you feel like you ever experienced that in a way where you recognized that was what was going on? Did it make you feel bad about yourself? Did it make you not want to, you know, ask questions and learn more about government and learn more about how systems work? What, what was your takeaway from that when you were a kid? This is quickly turning into um, Oprah slash Barbara Walters. Uh, (laughs) But no, I, yes, you, unfortunately that is what, happened back then and, and it still happens today uh where a lot of energy gets misinterpreted as 
maybe you're being rambunctious a little bit. Sure, sometimes you're acting up and things of that nature, but uh, people misinterpret that. And the next thing you know, you're either in detention or you're in a timeout room or maybe they don't think you're as smart as the next kid next to you. And there's a lot that plays in that class, race, different things along those lines. So it definitely happens. Um, we were just fortunate, or I was fortunate to have uh, parents who um, made sure to build us up at home and, and, and work with us even despite of some of those, those things that happen. I mean, all your your like answers are very politician esque. What do you mean? What do you, what, well, what I want, politician I want like the real tea. What was in your heart? And you're like, you know, just God bless that we had parents who lifted us up when we got home. <laughs> no, but I really want to know like how that may may have affected your sense of self and your level of curiosity when you're meeting up against people who are fundamentally misunderstanding you when they're supposed to be a part of the process of help shaping you for the future. I mean, I don't, I don't even remember. I mean, yes, I'm sure you, you don't feel great when you're wondering why did that person honors class and you're not, or this, and that's part of the reason why Mm -hmm. we ended up, I ended up going to, uh, a prep school for high schools because um, at the rate I was going, I probably was going to be another one that was either swept under the rug or forgotten about. But um, no, it doesn't feel great. Um, I'm starting. I'm not going to shed tears for you. This is like Barbara Walters. I'm supposed to I'm cry. not crying. I don't want you to uh, shed tears. Well how, well, how did you feel growing up? Well, I mean, I don't think I was ever like to the level that you were in terms of. Like, I think it was a curious child, but not to the level that you were, right? And so I think, like, I spoke up in class, but probably not as much as you did, right? And mm-hmm. so I think as a kid, I sort of was kind of, I mean, I enjoyed being a kid, but I think then once I hit teenage years, I felt like nobody, you know, the typical nobody understands me, I don't fit in, you know, we went to a predominantly white high school, and, you know, I'm a very, I'm a creative person. Like, I, I love the arts. And so everything that wasn't about the arts, I kind of didn't give, you know, that much energy to. But l- it worked out. It I'm, did work I'm, out. I'm, <laughs> it I'm did work sh- out. shooting a, a independent podcast from my living room. <laughs> I've made it. You made it. <laughs> so the only difference is now you have a microphone and yes. you can... uh Talk to people as well before I guess you're interviewing yourself back in the day when you were growing up. Yes. Yeah. Okay. One thousand percent. That's the only thing that's changed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you were a kid. Yes. And were you as a teenager, were you always still pretty much like I know you said I wanted to work in Wall Street, but I think you were still always, whether it was you reading biographies about different presidents, you were always still, I think, sort of hovering around the concept of government and you know i think a lot of times people we we don't always know like necessarily the thing that we're that's going to be our calling until later and so i'm wondering as you're in high school and then now you're, you're off to college george washington university were you sort of really still why are you laughing? Because they're probably have to, because they sound. You know how like um you watch people in their podcast and they slip in something for advertisements. 
So you, you just said George Washington <laughs> University. They're probably like, ching, yes. Donation at the bottom, please. <laughs> you too can't be on the podcast with me. But that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but do you think like during the, that time where you were like, I'm really focused mm-hmm. on Wall Street. I really want to be this business guy and, you know, have the wife, the house, the car, all these sort of things that were thought of as the American dream. Were you sort of like, forget government? Was it just really like, oh, it was nice for me to sort of think about that as a kid, but that's not really something I want to pursue. What made you not initially want to go down that path of government? Well, I don't know if I thought about whether or not to go down it. I mean, I got in, we, I went to George Washington University. <clears throat> and when I went there, I wanted to make sure I had a skill. Really, credit goes to my dad. Well, my brought it up too, but my dad about, you know, you want to have a tangible skill. So- and this is no shade to anybody that's a poli sci degree or any other type of degree, but it was, what are you going to do when you get out? And so mm-hmm. I've always been pretty decent with numbers and, and um, pretty decent with math and uh, always had interest in business. So I went size of my finances. Very frugal, but also cheap. I would like to say I make sure I manage my expenses, but you know, you know, however you want to manage it, <laughs> how you want to describe it. And, you know, I was a lot more interested in just government. Mm-hmm. C-SPAN books in high school. I want to make sure for the record here, I enjoy going, you know, parties and I played sports and, you know, yes, but comic no, books. Are you, are you LeBron James? No. So we're going to talk about what you doing. That's so soul crushing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so soul crushing. But You're yeah. changing lives. Come on. You're, you really I'm just giving you multi-layered lives. dimensions to what happened here. So, you know, so people are walking <laughs> around like, what? That's all he did? Um, and so I wanted to go into business. And so um, mm-hmm. I got, and that's where I met my wife back then. Um, and she was getting a marketing degree and we both in business school. And we thought we could take over the world. And that's when 9-11 happened. So I probably mm-hmm. would have tried to go to Wall Street first. Uh, but wow. after 9-11, when I was in junior year, I decided that um, I wanted to, to do something to give back. So it was either military, which nobody was supportive other than the family, or or Liz. yeah, that's too scary. So then I was like, okay, well, well, how else can I get back? And then and I never thought about working on Capitol Hill until senior year. And I was doing a dot com yeah. bu- bubble. So when that when that bubble uh, burst, there was people were just running trying to find a job. But I knew I wanted yeah. to serve. And so next thing you know, I ended up working on Capitol Hill. Where do you think your your instinct and desire? to serve comes from because there is an element um in you mm-hmm. that is also similar in my close friend Michelle Obama. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you just wanted to say that, didn't you? Like you like how I wrote you like how I wrote off your tongue. <laughs> my my friend, my buddy, you know. No, but you know, she is also she did a great person. job last night, by the way. Oh, she was incredible at the DNC. Yeah. But I, I, you know, the re, the true reason why I brought her up is because, and then you know, very limited time that I got to spend with her. I only did five cities on her book tour. What I always really admired about her is this desire that, like, yes, the glitz, the glam, the fame, everything. Her at the heart of her, she always wants to serve and connect and uplift, and like. Of all the famous people that I've been around, she is the only person who didn't any, like she didn't have 1% that wanted to pursue fame. So like for her, she truly is using her platform and 
such a giving, selfless way. And so, you know, I see a lot of her selflessness. I think you also have that as well. And so I'm curious as to where does that come from, that desire to serve a community, that desire to give back, to uplift. And it's not about getting praise on social media. It's not about the likes. It's like it is a thing that drives you. Where does that come from, you think? I mean, to be honest with you, it's just to pay it forward. I mean, I just, it's not, it's really not more complicated than that in a lot of ways. It's, you know, we were very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, we had parents who broke the cycle of poverty. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of opportunities that probably everyone back in the neighborhood never received. Um, yeah. And, um, and I, that never escaped me. And look, I mean, I remember when um, our parents had the store, they used to do stuff like tutoring and, Mm-hmm. donating you know electronics to people who didn't have them at home and so that stuff sticks with you and you start to think about well what's my part what what am I going to do to get back or whenever we would say we're so fortunate you know I remember our parents would always say well find a way to to, to find your way to get back or to mm-hmm. you know put some good into humanity and so for me public service is that for me government is that it's kind of the it's a referee in the world of opportunity to make sure everyone has some um, mm-hmm. and so that to me is public service. I don't, to, in my opinion, it, it's, it's a very, um, when done correctly, it's a very noble profession in which your constant question is, what more can we do to support people so they can, they can achieve their dreams? And that doesn't happen every day. Um, and it's a way to get back that isn't about financial compensation. It isn't about fame. It's about, you know, for example, a couple of weeks ago, someone was down and out. They weren't getting what they needed from unemployment benefits. And our office was able to do that. And so what's exciting is that that man now is going to be able to uh, take care of his family because he's going to get his checks on time, <clears throat> even though That's what's incredible. happened with COVID-19. And so there's nothing, you know, it's not bright lights. There's nothing spectacular about that. It's just being able to know we went to bed and at least for a little bit, someone was able to get ahead or had an opportunity or they're okay. And there's something, I think, um, not to be redeeming, but special about being able to do that. Yeah. And so do you feel like when 9-11 happened, because mm-hmm. you've worked before we get to your political career, you you also work in nonprofit. You've been doing that for, I think, over a decade at this point. And so do you feel like when 9-11 happened, that really just crystallized for you that, yes, I want to do acts of service and now I'm going to go on this nonprofit profit track? Like what was ultimately the thing that made you be like, okay, this is now what my career is going to be about. So technically when I went, when I didn't go to wall street and I went to Capitol Hill, I did that for a couple mm-hmm. of years. That was a way to get back. I did. I didn't stay there forever. I worked for Senator Diane Feinstein. Um, it was a really cool experience. Some of my closest friends are from there. Uh, a lot about how I learned, you know, a lot of credit to her, but how you are a really good, great public servant, um, how you put together a really great staff, how you make sure that constituent services are top notch for the people you represent. I learned a lot from her. Uh, a lot of people don't know she's one of the female trailblazers mm-hmm. who went through a lot of hazing and, and sexism and uh, anti-Semitic uh, treatment as she was climbing the ranks from supervisor. And those who know Harvey Milk and the whole story in San Francisco, mm-hmm. she one day found herself thrust into the spotlight of now running the city of San Francisco. And then from there, eventually become a United States Senator, which she served today. Today, so after I did that, I went in the corporate sector for a while, both in D.C. and then when we moved back to Ohio. And um, I don't know if I told. Did I ever tell you the story about Antoine Collins? Did I ever tell you about that? I don't think you did, but the name so, sounds familiar. Your 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 your, uh, your special <laughs> language. Uh, okay, so basically, um, 
I was working at Marcus Thomas in advertising and marketing. And they had a sign there about changing the world through tutoring. So I signed up to do that. Um, I went there and got trained at Warrensville Middle School. And they give you a binder and they gave you a Cinderella book. Uh, and they talked to you about how to teach a child how to read. So I got a seventh grade boy with a fifth grade reading level. Uh, and I took that Cinderella book, which is really a bad idea uh, because you think you know what you're doing. So I'm sitting there trying to tutor him. He's not even making eye contact with me. He's like literally like, I can't believe you brought one black man to another. You brought a Cinderella book. And you're going to teach me how to read. First of all, I got to admit, I don't know how to read. And then you're going to teach me how to read with Cinderella. Uh, so we literally just stared at each other for 45 minutes. It was, it was terrible. <laughs> and I'm glad you're laughing at the situation. We're staring at each other. He's like over me. And I'm like trying to say, well, what about this page? I'll start. And then you read. And he's just like, nope, not going to happen. And then I said, well, wh- what do you like? And he was looking at around the room and I saw him make eye contact with a sports illustrated magazine and had LeBron James on the cover. So I said, you like LeBron James? He said, yeah. So, oh, cool. You're a Cavaliers fan. So am I. He's like, no, I'm not a Cavaliers fan. I'm a Celtics fan. And then we spent about 15 minutes like, how is that possible if you live in Cleveland? Um, (laughs) But what we did do is we started reading. And so for the next 13 to 15 weeks, we read like probably at least 60 minutes to 90 minutes, depending on what was going on. We talked about life. We talked about his family, you know, what the situations, his challenges he had going on. And you realize quickly that that could have been him. It could have been me. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of genetic lottery and that you're fortunate who your parents are, your circumstances, but you don't get to choose mm-hmm. as a child. And so at the end of that, he gave me two things when he graduated from the reading program. He gave me a, a plant. He gave me a note that says you're the best teacher in the world, but you misspelled the word teacher. So um, you, you're happy on one end that he was able to get through the program, but you do also feel a little bit like you failed in the sense of, gosh, you can get that right. So Thought about it, drove home, thought about it. And then I told Liz I wanted to do something different. So I quit my corporate career and was executive on loan for a year where I basically rotated a lot of different nonprofits and school districts trying to help out. And then after that, um, I thought I was going to go into private equity. I was like, oh, I gave a good year of service. That was cool. I'm going to go ahead. It's time to go, you know, private equity, go cash in. And uh, I met a, a, a man who was in the corporate sector who said, there's this organization called City, or you should think about working there. And I said, I don't do nonprofits. Yeah. I, I might sit on the board and cut a check, but I don't do them. He said, well, just go go there for a second. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> what? You just wanted to know. You sound like someone in a rom-com who's like, uh-uh, I don't date guys who are shorter than me. And then they, like, fall in love with, like, Rob Schneider or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> That doesn't even but sound good, even so... after you, <laughs> you say that. <laughs> no, but, I mean, I, so I, I, I went there, and the rest yeah. of history, I really was impressed by what they were doing, and and so, you know, I started, a, it wasn't quite 10 years, like nine and a half, but I, I spent almost mm-hmm. 10 years in nonprofit world. Yeah. Okay. That is such a cute story. And this is like one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is because, you know, whether it's like a brother or a friend, it's like you get to ask these like deep questions that you're not necessarily going to ask. Like, you know, when we hang out, like we talk about life, but we also like want to have fun and blah, blah, blah. So this is really nice that we can just go deep. So I just want to say that. But also what I find really interesting is as someone who is so giving and really wants to like do all these acts of services, I'm really I'm intrigued as to why you at first were like, oh, no, I don't do nonprofits. I'm not interested. Like what what were your hesitations to begin with? I mean, you know, you go to business school and you, mm-hmm. you're there, you're trying to make, figure out your career 
And there's a lot of things you think that you know about nonprofits. Oh, well, they, they're not efficient. You don't make as much money working in that that sector and different things of that nature. And um, you, it's not until you get in there, you see the amount of impact you can do and you can make a living mm-hmm. while also mm-hmm. doing, uh, it, um, as John, the late John Lewis would say, good trouble that you can get mm-hmm. in trying to figure out how do you change the culture of school? How do you help students out? How do you give them a voice to demand what they need uh, from the educational system? And so um, I walked in thinking it was one thing. And, it, and you think about, oh, nonprofit, I'm going to help give to you so you're able to do better things. You, it's not until you get into it, you realize, oh, we can do things that change the world if we're involved in it. And so I didn't realize that myself until I got into it. Do you feel, you know, especially we're in an era because of social media and the Internet where activism is a is a terminology and an ideology that's thrown around all the time. And there's a lot of like certain people think only X, Y, Z qualifies activism. Other people think it's this. There's a lot of like unity, but also a lot of just sort of like butting heads. Do you feel like, or do you feel as though your, your career in nonprofit was your way of being an activist for your community? Never even thought about that. Well, look, first of all, there's a lot of fake activists. So that's number one. Ooh, let's hear about um, it. Well, I'm just saying there's, well, they're just mm-hmm. live on social media or they have a whole lot mm-hmm. to say. You know, activism is when you're sitting in the basement of a church trying to help people mobilize on how do you fight for you know, better um, renters insurance or better um, renter laws to make sure your landlord can't just evict you out immediately. Activism is when you're in a senior center center and you're advocating for better health care and prescription drugs. You know, adv- advocacy and, and activism is not when the camera's on. It's the work that the grimy grinding out work you have to do when the cameras are not there. That, to me, that's a true activist. And it's a false choice too, because you need both, activists and you also need people on the inside and you need both together working in parallel to make change. It's not an either mm-hmm. or and too many people um, take a lot of pot shots from the side. That's not to say that's all activists. But I know a ton of activists who are really involved. They do things mm-hmm. like making sure everyone has, like I know colleagues who are, as we speak right now, walking the streets, making sure everyone has the absentee ballot. Um, that's mm-hmm. activism. No one's seen you do that. No one's going to give you a shout out. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And it's going to yeah. hopefully change the country. And so I just want to make that distinction there. They're activists, but they're also people who claim to be activists, um, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily. And then, look, there's also people on the inside who are, are only in it for themselves. Um, they're not mm-hmm. in it to do things for uh, their fellow man or fellow woman. So there's a lot on both sides where there are people who pose versus people who really getting the work done. And so do you feel like you spending this time at City Year and doing other nonprofit activities was your way of being like, this is how I'm showing up. These are the things that I care about and I believe in. Cause I think, you know, everyone can say I stand for this, this, and this, but to put skin in the game, I think is another level to celebrate the wins, but also have to deal with the defeats is another level. And, you know, any sort of career, you're going to have your ups and downs and sort of like still wanting to stay in that zone of like, I, I can't give up. I have to keep going because I know that change. Did someone just text you? <laughs> Let's keep the show going. <laughs> Let's keep the show going. <laughs> the audacity. If you were talking to Oprah in her backyard under a lemon tree, you have your phone set to airplane mode. I just want the record to reflect. No, you, your you know honor. what? You know what? I would tell Oprah, my phone's always on. Yes, sir. The people. It never goes off. So, <laughs> my Oprah, sorry. 
you know, but people always need service. You can't turn it off. You can't turn it off, Oprah. <laughs> but I forgot my train of thought. I was asking, oh, so but, but sticking in with yeah. the day in, day out and those sort of struggles. Like if you look at Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and that movement, and you know, that was started in 2014. And it had to go through all these ups and downs of people sort of paying attention and not paying mm-hmm. attention, people discrediting it, and then people mm-hmm. like all this vitriol. And then now it's become this global movement, mm-hmm. which is massive in terms of civil rights. Like we've never had this on a global scale like this before. And it's exciting that it's getting all this representation and attention, but it had to go through so many years and months and mm-hmm. days of just like getting through the mud. And so I'm curious for, I think will help a lot of people listening to this when they think about activism is thinking about it in terms of it's a marathon, right? It's mm-hmm. not like, you're not going to just win at one thing and then like the the world is cured. Could you sort of talk about that a little bit? I think it's amazing what Black Lives Matter has done. Now, what I will say mm-hmm. is now how do we turn that into political power, economic power? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've been able to get people to at least have to reckon with it. I wouldn't say they all mm-hmm. agree. I think there's a lot of people still struggling to accept what Black Lives Matter is trying to really push for. But now the question is, how do you translate that into political economic power? I think that's where we're, that's the next evolution, whether it's running for office, whether it's making sure businesses are more socially conscious. And if you get in a role where you can make a decision and, you know, making sure that tap water is clean, you know, is clean in neighborhoods and different things of that nature. We're, we're on the precipice of being able to take something that's grown to a worldwide uh, not only phenomenon, but movement, and now turn into something where it can literally change the way the country works. And that's what's mm-hmm. going to be exciting to see. And uh, you and I are old now, but like to see what the, the next generation of ah! 20-year-old people. Well, I mean, you know. I'm young. I'm 35. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. (laughs) Okay, before we get to audience questions, I do want to talk about you being a state representative because I think that is so exciting. I'm so proud of you. Um, Then we'll talk about you being a stand-up comedian next. Yeah, no one cares Um, about that. (laughs) But, no, I really want to talk to you about, I know you're in the middle of re-election, so we could talk about that as well, but... You know, I think throwing your hat in the ring and mm-hmm. taking that next step of I'm going to enter local politics is to me, you know, like I I used to love The West Wing. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. And, you know, and that show was great because, you know, there would be all these dramas, but if you just pull out a great monologue, you could just change the other side and things are going to be, you know... Right again. And obviously that's not the way that actual politics works. So I'm wondering when you first started, this is your first term that you're in the middle Mm of, what surprised you the most about being a local politician and what was something that you wish someone had told you before you were elected about what you were going to have to face? So, you know, West Wing's cool, but just so you know, the, the hallways in there in the White House are not that wide, just so you know. Try to say that <laughs> years ago. <clears throat> everyone had, if four people were able to walk together in a power walk. That's not realistic. But uh, so let's talk, you know, this, so it's interesting because mayors and city council members, they consider you local, but not really. They consider you more state. And then even though you're at the state level, then the federal level's over here. So you're you're in the middle. You have the most effect on people's lives, but 
Mm-hmm. People know the least about that particular role. People know what the mayor does. Uh, people know the city council person, the person you call when a cat's in the tree or when, you know, um, the trash is being picked up at the curb or there's issue with uh, some, uh, a neighbor not respecting your, your boundaries between you and that person. Uh, mm-hmm. At the state level, they don't realize you do everything from gun control to reproductive rights, education, uh, and everything in between. Almost every law that affects you starts at the state level. Um, it starts in the state legislature. So it's kind of things that I, I learned about. One, uh, term limits don't sound as great as people think. Because we have term limits, that means the politicians come and go, but the lobbyists, and, and not all lobbyists are bad, by the way. For certain lobbyists who are entrenched establishment people, um, mm-hmm. they are the ones a lot of times who are running so much of the game or they're writing so many of the laws. And you have to figure out who do you work with, who do you trust. I, I think another thing is how do you want to think. So a couple of things were tough. One, being away from your family. Um, so the state house is two and a half hours away. Uh, so I drive there and then you're there a couple of days and you drive back and trying to hold down a full-time job because the state rep job is supposed to be quote unquote part-time, even though people are asking for things all around the clock. And then learning how laws are really made, how decisions are really determined, uh, who really controls state government, uh, who's behind the scenes. You, you learn, you know, this scene in um, the candidate, Robert Redford, uh, at the end where, where he, yeah. you know, he wins and then, um, his campaign manager or advisor looked at him and Robert Redford says, now what? And so you realize when you get there, there's a whole lot that happens. And once you win, there's a lot of people want a piece of you uh, for a lot of things they want to advocate for. And you have to quickly understand and remember, why did I go there? What did I say I was going to do? And make sure to surround yourself with people who are not only trying to do the right things themselves, but will help you try to promote the agenda that you got elected to do in the first place. Um, and what... What was kind of, because I remember we went to your swearing-in ceremony mm-hmm. and it was so special. And so when you were getting sworn in, were you sort of overcome with emotion? Like what? Because we were all the way in the back. So we like we didn't have seats. I had to stand. First of all, a couple of things we should just correct for the record. You were there. <laughs> you got <laughs> one. A lot of people couldn't get in the building. So you were there. So first real problems. Hashtag first real problems. Number two. Uh, British Bake Off was there with you. So you got to bring he him He was. Well. But yeah. why am I standing in the back? Didn't Rosa Parks work so I wouldn't have to be in the back anymore? For those who have not been to the Ohio State House, you have the people who sit in the seats <laughs> voting, and there's the audience in the back. So you really weren't all the way in the back, but nice try. Uh, <laughs> and then up in the gallery, there are more seats. And you, st- you stood in the back with my dad. And, and uh, no, I mean, it goes by fast. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you don't get a chance to reflect on only a couple thousand people have ever served in the state house. You're looking up at the ceiling, um, looking at the, like the glass, stained glass there. And you're looking around the history around the room and you're thinking, wow, um, a guy like me from where we, you know, where we came from after where our parents did. Now I'm in the state house representing people, 121,000 people, and I got to make sure I advocate for them. It's, you know, you get, it, it hits you. And then, you know, when your kids figure out what's going on and, and they're pretty impressed. So that's all cool. But I, I think the second you get a chance to let that hit you, immediately I start going to work. And so that's when it ended up yeah. happening. And so now you're in the middle of this reelection and, you know, you're thinking about what you want to do next term. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you've accomplished this time around? And what are the things that you're looking forward to accomplishing again if you get the privilege of serving the people for another term? So, you know, we ran on a couple basic things. Uh, one was education. 
So we raised teacher salaries, which I'm really proud of. We increased school funding to the highest level it's ever been, including $620 million for wraparound services. Um, we've done a lot of stuff around that. We stopped the expansion of vouchers at the expense of public schools. Those are all things that really have real day-to-day effects that impact people immediately, which is really cool. Um, on the local business front, we made, I passed my first bill. We got signed into law, so Mike DeWine got to sign that. You know, and I work for the Republican to get that bill passed. And so that's going to train and get people certificates faster so they can get jobs, so we can fill jobs faster. So really excited about that, especially since we both were – we have parents who are entrepreneurs, and so it's really exciting mm-hmm. to see our, our, us be able to do a little bit to give back to help other small business owners put people to work. And then we brought about $2 million worth of money back to local government so they can use it to take care of citizens. So I'm really proud of my record and what I was able to do. And I did a lot working not only with my Democratic colleagues, but working across the aisle with Republican colleagues to get things done. That's what people care about at the end of the day. Can you get anything done? Mm-hmm. Are, are you effective? Or are you just someone who likes to grab the microphone and talk? Um, and so – you know, running for re-election, really excited. To, the next big thing I'm working on, which I'm excited about, is creating full-day kindergarten in Ohio and universal pre-K for all three-year-olds and four-year-olds. Uh, if we're able to do that, we'll, believe it or not, some of the best public education systems for early education are in West Virginia and Georgia. These aren't places mm-hmm. people think of, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. but it's because they've invested in these things. And I want to make sure that happens here in the state of Ohio. I uh, want to make sure we could do more to raise the minimum wage and do other things on the business side. And then also access to health care. Um, when I had my buddy recently who had a mini stroke, the only thing I could think of is what if he didn't have the right health care? Would he have gotten served? Would, would his bills have been even worse to pay for? Could he have died in the middle of COVID-19? So a lot of these issues at the state house are really life and death issues. Um, and, and what I want people to understand is you have a direct impact uh, on being able to make that happen. Uh, we lost about a thousand state house seats across the country over the last decade as Democrats. Uh, president is great. Vice president is great. Uh, your senator is awesome. U.S. senator is awesome. But at the end of the day, it's the people the closest to you making the laws that mm-hmm. have the biggest impact. And I want to make sure that people understand why it's important to know who your state rep and your state senator are um, and know what your state government does so that you can advocate or make sure that people who are doing the right thing stay in office. And also go out and vote because I I remember yeah. when you were running, you were out every single weekend knocking door to door, really showing up, talking to the people in your community so that you would know what they care mm-hmm. about the most should you get this position so you could then best represent them. And you won by, what was your margin? Mm-hmm. I remember it was so wild how it just flipped like very quickly and you ended up winning. What was the margin of votes? You should remember because we had a Hallmark moment that you put on Instagram, but that's okay. I know, but I can't remember <laughs> all the numbers. It was like... A thousand something votes. votes. And I think a lot of times people might go, well, my vote doesn't matter on the local level. It doesn't matter. Like, it's fine. But really, it comes down to everyone showing up and really Mm -hmm. sort of valuing their vote and understanding, you know, folks like John Lewis really, you know, fought hard so that we could vote in every election possible. So... I am really, I'm just going to move my mic up. Sorry. It it dropped a little, so I wanted to make sure you could hear me. So I really just want to encourage everyone listening to really sort of like, if you have any opportunity to vote, don't take that for granted. Really vote, really get your voice out there, really show up for the people who work on the local as well as the federal level for you. So, yeah. 
I so, just want to say I'm very yes. So, oh right, you're very proud of me. I thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, w- I am very proud of you. I mean, just <laughs> listening to you talk and seeing the life that you have that you've created for yourself, and you know, you didn't have to end up where you were. You know what I mean? Like so many different things have gone wrong, and I just think that you lead life in such a really positive, good way. And I'm just really proud that you are that's who you nice. are. That's really nice of you. Thank you. So, so when did you decide you want to become a stand-up comedian? This is not about me. This is about you because we're moving to my favorite part of the show. Audience questions. Black <laughs> Frasier. Where, where's, your, where's your music? <laughs> You don't need to hear no music right now. You hear it later okay. when this episode is edited. Okay, my fault. Dang. I was waiting for you know how like on the talk show they had the music when they do a segment. I thought like Bridge Bake Off was gonna start playing some mellow guitar or something to ease us in. What do you think our budget is for this podcast? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's zero. Okay. Okay. All right. It is zero. We, we need to get you nothing. some. Let's get you a couple, couple of corporate sponsors. <laughs> no, we have some really, really good okay. questions, so I'm really excited. Um, let me start. Ooh, okay. Let me start with this one. This is a good one. It okay. is from Anonymous. Okay, Anonymous writes: I grew up in Ohio and currently live in the Washington D.C. area. Growing up in Ohio, we were often advised to not discuss politics because our neighbors or other relatives often have wide-ranging political beliefs. This has gotten more difficult for me over the years, especially since 2016. Do you have any tips on how to talk about the issues that matter to me as a lib with family members of, of friends, or sorry, with family members or friends that stayed in Ohio that I don't see eye to eye with politically? Mm. Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> you feeling for her? Uh, I am. Well, it's tough because <clears throat> yeah. I'm just loud AF and I'm annoying. So you all know I'm not for 45. So no one's confused about where I stand <laughs> and what I believe. But I think for people who have more tact and don't want to burn bridges and set fire to the rain, they need your advice on how to do this. Do all New Yorkers just completely disown ever knowing Donald Trump? That well, here's the thing: New York City is lib, but the state there's a lot of Trump country. Yeah, a lot of Trump yeah. country. No, yeah. I mean I think the person should focus on the kitchen table issue. So uh, mm. when you talk about public school, when you talk about um, prescription drugs for your grandma who has to choose between that and paying the rent, all of a sudden the Politics, while it still is important, um, it's, those are things that everybody knows, everyone affects. Or this is what happens when we don't have good government intervention. We have COVID-19 people die. Um, yeah. Having conversations where you take away the first tier of that political stuff, is, which is what allows people to say you're in this camp or that camp and say, here are the issues I care about. Here are the issues I'm passionate about. Let me talk to you about how this impacts people I know, impacts me. And people aren't going to get along on, on a lot of political issues. What I found is even in the state house, I have people who think completely different than me on a lot of different things. But the kitchen are table you, issues. Are you clicking them. your AirPod case open and closed? If I am, what's that? What's going to happen? Well, it's picking up the sound. This is a podcast. I know, but it's like uh, you see, it's like that scene in Casino where he has the gold, um, 
uh, what do you call it? The gold um, hey, lighter. Hey, Bobby D, Bobby D, Bobby D. I'm going to need you to put that away. <laughs> and we're almost at the end of the yeah. podcast. You're like, you know what? I'm going to mess with the audio. So you can't, you can't open and close because we hear it. Oh, okay. Well, I thought that's organic, real conversation while we're hanging around. But I, I, I just stopped now. I don't want to get in trouble with the producer. Let's, let's go back to <laughs> what, what we, were, we were talking about there. So about the but kitchen, kitchen table, table issues. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, things yes. that you care about that you know everybody in the neighborhood cares about. Okay. And then maybe do you think like if anonymous starts there, right, Mm -hmm. then maybe if they want to have a deeper conversation about touch your issues, Mm -hmm. then like the universe, like we all agree that Mm -hmm. public education is important. Do you think she can sort of test the water or not she, they can sort of test Mm -hmm. the waters with that? Or do you think it's just advantageous for for certain people to just not? Yeah. And some people I wouldn't engage further on either side because they're not trying to hear you, whether mm-hmm. they're on far left, mm-hmm. far right, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So you have to really play that by ear. Um, there's certain people that you end up, we all have them where we agree, well, I'm not going to talk about politics with you because we're just going to go mm-hmm. off the rails and that's not, that's not a good look. Yeah. It's like, let's be chill. Let's not talk mm-hmm. about it so we can watch Ozark together. Okay. So. Uh, okay. okay all right that's kind of what i said yeah kind of what i said okay hillary writes how can we make the ohio legislature less right wing uh we gotta vote like like michelle obama said vote like a life depends on it so in ohio right now the, the former speaker republican um was involved in a $60 million bribery scandal. Uh, $60 million. Hot mess. (laughs) But I mean, really, in the last 30 to 35 years, only two years have Democrats been in charge. And so for that entire time, Republicans have been running almost all three branches of government for the majority of time. And so one-party rule, gerrymandering, corruption, it breeds more corruption, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's happened down there. And it's time for a change. And so... Let, tell everybody who, who is on the fence about voting, tell them to vote. Everyone who's disgusted with what they see, go vote. Um, everyone who feels as though there are politicians who look out for me, go vote. Uh, Ohio has some of the best gerrymandering in the country. Um, and that's why we have the districts that we have. And that's why we have entrenched uh, individuals representing uh, different parts of the state. Now, on the other side, Democrats, we got to show up in places that we don't feel comfortable in to make the case for why they need to vote for us so that we can represent them as well. We, we can't just blame them in a lot of places we haven't shown up there are a lot of rural areas and blue collar areas where, where we we lose 80 to 20 70 to 30 because we're not showing up and making the case and tying it to what happens every day for working class people all right hillary i hope that answers your question that was a great question um i really 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 like this next question this is from carly in canada carly writes hey phoebe love you love you too boo Question for your brother about running for office. How open do you need to be about your personal life? I'm poly slash ethically non-monog and have basically just assumed I can't run. I'm out to my friends and family, but don't know if I'm ready to be the first openly poly anything. Thanks for any advice or info. So, I mean, you can <clears throat> you can run for office and still be somewhat private. I mean, it, it sounds like oxymoron, but it's not. For example, 
you won't mm-hmm. see our children out there really anywhere because yeah. we try to keep privacy for them. Um, look, if, if a, a black guy who uh, is a vegan with a white wife in a district that is majority white can run for office in the Republican area and win, um, I think anything is possible if you're willing to talk about the issues that are important to you. You may not always get the acceptance that you want. Um, mm-hmm. But what people really care about at the end of the day is can you get something done? And so find ways to connect with people on issues that are important to them. I don't know what necessarily is going on in that, that particular part of Canada and whoever's representing them, the, the, whoever's the minister or parliament representing them in that area. But what I do know is that if you go out and you find things that co- the common bonds that connect people, it's how you're able to really move the needle and getting people to get behind your idea, support you and, and join you, whatever movement you're trying to lead. So my question would be, why do you want to run? Why do you believe you're the right person for that area? What about you uniquely connect you to the people who are representing you? And that all lines up. Then the question is, how do you talk about the issues and what you would do for them? And then less about maybe your pol- your personal life or what you do behind closed doors. Because uh, but it, it's also <clears throat> sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say, well, the thing is, is as much as society likes to pretend we're all open and fluid and blah blah blah, mm-hmm. people still hold onto these quote unquote traditional values where it's like man and wife this sort of notion. And so I'm wondering, there are people who live outside that box and really care about their, you know, their, their neighborhoods. They really want to get involved and they might feel discouraged that like, if I do this, is my life going to be torn apart? Am I going to be judged based on how I date? Well, I mean, yes. Understand her hesitation. So there is some privacy issues. I mean, you don't have privacy necessarily, you know, whenever I go out places, People stop you and they want to talk to you. They want to ask you a question. You can be out with your kids. That, that's part of the sacrifice you give up in order to make sure you can advocate for people. But Virginia voted for the first uh, trans person to represent them in, mm-hmm. in the state house. Um, uh, the, the senator, you have senior senator uh, in Arizona, United States senator. She's bisexual. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot um, that is moving and happening. It's not easy. It's not overnight. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is it's possible. And the question is, if you believe that strongly what you want to do, you're willing to do whatever it takes, even if it means not easy, even if it means, unfortunately, people take a lot of shots at you uh, with what they say. Uh, as long as your heart's in it for the right reason, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. But I also think that makes the victory that much sweeter when you're able to make it happen. So I would also look up people who've done amazing things and see who are similar to you and see, can I learn something from them? Oh, well, Carly, I hope you appreciate that advice. And PJ, this Mm -hmm. has been such a great conversation. I've had so much fun with you. I hope you enjoy being on Black Frasier. This is awesome. And truly, you're so inspiring. I hope that when people listen to this episode, they will also be moved and inspired to sort of find what their acts of service are and what it means to them to sort of give back to their community, their friends, their family, what have you. I I just think you're a spectacular person, and I know we're both workaholics and we don't talk enough. So it was great to just have a podcast <laughs> where we have to we have to put down our phones for an hour so we can actually have a great conversation. So are we going to do like Meet the Press where you have like um, the after hours <laughs> where they do the extended interview pr- session? No. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it a great conversation with BJ? Mm, you you two are just... You must have been a handful when you were kids. <laughs> yeah, we drove our parents yeah. bonkers. They were so sick of just our bickering back and forth. But look at us now. We're like 
We have it together. Just about. (laughs) I watch you two sometimes and it just takes like one little slip of something and you're back to being teenagers again, just pushing each other's buttons. That's very true. But isn't that what family's all about? True. I wish I had a theme song. Anyway, like I wish I had a theme song that I've written about families. What I was trying to oh, say. Oh, okay. Like I, was I don't. Say we do have a theme song. It's played at the beginning of every episode by Gavin Turek. T U R E K, Gavin. Okay, we gotta keep this episode moving along, babes, because it's very long. For sure. Next up is Ijoma Aluo. You guys are gonna love her. You know her. Um, pre-order her book, Mediocre. Buy her first book. So you want to talk about race? follow her on instagram she's amazing i love her so much well hi ijioma how are you (laughs) oh i'm okay i just sent my kid off to college oh my gosh kind of a mess about it i'm super excited for him and bawling he's driving so i have like for the first time, like really dug into those parental phone controls just so I can see where he is on his trip. Like went through all teenage <laughs> years being like, no, it's fine. Don't need that. But now I'm like, where is he right now? I need to know like, yeah. <laughs> where in the highway is he? Cause he's driving all the way to Indiana. So wow, it's a big adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't, I can't even imagine cause I, I don't have kids, but this just must be such a like sense of pride to send your child off like you infuse your kid with like all this knowledge and love and warmth and now you're like go be out in the world like wow like you spend a lot of time realizing because you know I think I remember being 18 differently than it looks as a parent staring at your child because I remember being like (laughs) yes I'm an adult I'm gonna do all this stuff and I'm looking at my kid like you you still don't know where anything is in the fridge like you don't how (laughs) How is this going to work? How are you going to be okay without me? I don't understand how this is possible. Like just completely <laughs> paranoid and I'm sure he will do fine. But yeah, I, um, you realize how young 18 is when it's your kid. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, that's yeah. still very, very young. But you know, yeah. you to have their adventures and try new things. And I did the best I could and, and he's a wonderful young man. So we'll see how it goes. Oh, best of luck. Um, Well, I'm so glad that you could join me on Black Frasier today. I'm really excited. Um, When we did the IG Live, I guess like maybe a few months ago, people like were obsessed with it. They just loved everything you said and they feel like they learned so much. And so, you know, with this podcast today in particular, I wanted us to like sort of dive even deeper into some of the things that we were talking about, which is... um, local politics and sort of community activism, because I think that's sort of like an ongoing theme that people are sort of trying to wrestle with, figure out how to best participate and what exactly that means, because it's different for every person, right? It's not like this uniform thing. And so I guess I want to start at sort of the beginning when you started becoming really active in your community in a way and and really sort of what that process was like for you. Were you nervous? Were you excited? Like, how did you dive in? Yeah. You know, I would say in my youth, I definitely had a lot of activity. Like, it's really funny now, actually, because my partner and I were both at the same protest. We didn't know each other back then. But like, you know, we were both at the big <gasps> wow. protest back in 1999. And, you know, kind of similar actions, anti-war protests, uh, things like that. 
and it was, you know, a thing that you did. Um, I think we forget what the Bush years were like and how mm-hmm. traumatic they were. I think, you know, right now we're like, oh, Trump's the worst. But also remember when we had this illegal war, then we reelected the person that got us in this war and it was, you know, horrifying. And so I, you know, I think my mom was always, my mom I wouldn't say was inherently like very political, but also had a really strong sense of right and wrong, right? Very, very strong sense. And we, my brother and I both had this kind of sense of outrage, you know, when things weren't going. And then I also always had a political fascination. Like, I think I remember at six, the um, Tiananmen Square protests and trying to figure out everything and going to the library and getting National Geographics and, you know, trying to understand what was going on. And, but then, you know, life goes, you know, and I had kids and, I think that for me, I I remained fairly politically active through the Bush years, Um, you know, canvassing, doing all these things to try to keep people out, you know, and voting. And then, you know, got a job in tech and tried, you know, focused on raising a family and my kind of resurgence back into this space really started with the murder of Trayvon Martin. And for me, it was about survival. It was really, it started with the shocking realization that living in liberal Seattle um, wasn't the utopia that people had made it out to be. I had grown up there, but realizing as an adult, when you desperately need these politically informed, politically active people to actually start speaking out about racism and they refuse, Um, was kind of, you know, a big wake up call. And it helped me kind of start to piece together my own life and childhood here um, and the differences that I had experienced, you know, over the years. And so I started out just first, I think like many people, right? Like showing up at a protest or two, blogging, Facebooking, tweeting, you know, and what I realized, and I think for a lot of Black people, especially when you start speaking out, especially if you live in a space like I do, where it was considered, you know, proper to not talk about race, to not, you know, make people uncomfortable with difficult conversations. Once you kind of open that door, it's just a flood that comes out, a flood of emotion, um, reality, like you see yourself in this real way. And so I just couldn't shut up. Like I really just couldn't, it, I, you know, no one could let me to. And I realized I was kind of in this spot where, oh, I'm going to either get fired from my job um, or I can leave now and just see if I can live a life kind of dedicated to getting, you know, to the truth. And that's what I did. Just kind of one day said, I'm done. I quit. I did that whole dramatic thing, which was so weird for me and started hustling and writing and talking. And my whole life changed pretty much overnight in a way that I had never, ever expected. If you had asked me a decade ago, what do you think you'll be doing? I'd be like, oh, maybe I'll be a VP in tech somewhere, you know? And that would (laughs) have been my great victory um, was that like financial security as a black woman. But I, I don't think in a million years I would have said, oh, you would be a full time writer and speaker on issues of race in America. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that you brought up, which is sort of the idea that a lot of people who are live in more liberal leaning neighborhoods tend to think that they don't have they they don't have any experiences with racism, racism in their neighborhoods or their communities. And I think like 
what we saw happening on a global scale with these uprisings shows that like that is so not the case and that racism sort of affects every fabric of or every part of the world. Right. And so I guess, you know, my question is for a lot of people listening to this who are sort of kind of lulled into this sense of community, how can they sort of go about reexamining the neighborhoods that they live in to sort of find out what is the actual structure and how power is being executed within their communities? You know, what was really interesting to me is realizing that the racism isn't actually quiet. It's really blatant. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really in your face because you're surrounded in these areas. It's just no one actually says the thing, you know, Um, the discrimination is is constant. You know, the othering is constant. The erasure is constant. It's just no one has to say anything. Um, Whiteness feels very, very safe and comfortable in liberal white majority spaces. Mm -hmm. And then as BIPOC people, we are gaslit out of you know, into thinking that this isn't actually happening, you know, like, oh, no, maybe it's just me, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not, maybe they are treating me differently because I'm black, maybe I'm the problem, maybe I'm doing something wrong, maybe we're just not getting along, you know, maybe I'm not comfortable here because I'm not doing the right things, and no one will ever name it, and everyone will say, no, you know, we all voted for Obama, you know, we, we're all liberal, And so what I would say, first and foremost, is look at the numbers. The numbers in your area are going to tell the truth of what's happening in your area, right? And when you have, you know, the vast income disparities, you're going to see that across the board. You're going to see school suspension rates by race that will shock you and, and, you know, help you understand. Even in places where you feel like people aren't getting arrested a lot, if you look at who's actually in the local jails, in your liberal areas, it's going to be disproportionately BIPOC people. Look at the numbers and then say, where do I see reflections of this in my life? No matter what race or ethnicity you are, you're going to see reflections of this. If you look at the poverty rates and you're going to see, look around your office and see who's making a living wage and who isn't, who has a chance for advancement and who doesn't. You know, when you're seeing, you know, looking at school numbers and, you know, looking at teachers and looking at who's going on to higher education, Start looking at these numbers and saying, where are our kids being, you know, shuttled out of the education system here? It will exist. And I have never found a city in this country where it doesn't. And a lot of times we like to pretend that racism is a problem that lives elsewhere. But the truth is, is that it's in these liberal cities that our kids are being killed by police. You know, it's in these liberal cities that we're facing discrimination, that doctors are discriminating against us when we have healthcare problems, where right now black people are, you know, suffering often disproportionately, you know, in COVID times. So see the numbers if you need that to kind of jolt you out of the ways in which you've been gaslit. Okay. So let's go back to you for a second. So once you started to make this transition into writing about race, writing about um, local politics and the way that communities engage or don't engage with each other. Can you sort of talk us through like what was sort of the outside reception? Like were your friends and family sort of like, well, who is this Ijeoma? I don't recognize this person. Mm -hmm. Or were they kind of like, oh, finally, like all the things you talk about privately, you're able to express yourself publicly through your writing. It was a mix. I would say Mm -hmm. I lost a huge amount of white friends, like just almost immediately. Um, 
which was heartbreaking at first, you know, really, because you're like, you, you set out doing this, talking about this in the hopes that you'll be proven wrong you know, in the hopes mm. that people will step up. And the initial response was like, this was not the deal. You know, I didn't sign up for this. You're making me uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, they were like, oh God, I lost so many friends and coworkers were really like, hmm. And it was funny because I think probably in like the two years before I had gone natural with my hair, people were like, oh, is this a whole militant thing you have going on? I'm like, I'm just a person. Wait, when was this? What what year was this? You know, this was probably 2013, you wow. know? And, yeah. um, and then it was really funny because, I mean, and people were blatant about it, you know, because you're disrupting mm. the peace. But there were some people where I think it fit, you know, like I remember I had a coworker who she would say something ridiculous and then just stare at me and wait for me to be like, um, that's a ridiculous thing you just said. <laughs> so people kind of knew who I was. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was as obvious to the people who really knew and appreciated me what a, what was going on until I quit my job. I remember I was just writing, blogging, still like not sure what I was going to do. And then one day I just quit and it was like, oh my God, have I, have I lost it? What's happening? You know, I, I have a mortgage, like I have children and I have nothing lined up and I just quit and I had no savings, you know, maybe $500 in my bank account. And I said, I quit. And I remember I posted on Facebook and my friends were like, oh, Thank God. Like we were wondering when <laughs> we were wondering when you were gonna do this. Like we're gonna leave this toxic space. And I don't think I had realized how much I had grown out of it. What an ill fit it had been for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who really knew and appreciated me absolutely did. But you know, it was interesting because yeah, I lost 80% of my friends probably became this real hermit who just wrote, 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 wrote. But almost immediately that community was replaced by other people who were Mm -hmm. feeling similarly. And, and also over the years, some of those people who disappeared came back and, and, you know, I had to deal with each one and say whether or not I wanted these people in my life, but it was weird to hear from someone five years later say, ah, you know, I really didn't handle this well at the time. And now I'm seeing it. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's the luxury of whiteness, right? You can take a good five years uh, (laughs) to decide whether or not this is an issue, you know, whether or not that one, you know, black woman that really annoyed you was actually right. Um, But it was, it's been interesting to watch people kind of come back into the space or try to. Yeah. And so when you were getting out your writing and sort of kind of really just being outspoken. And I, for me, I feel like you are a leader. I don't know how you feel about yourself, but I really do think you are a leader. And I think a lot of people find inspiration through you and can sort of see the, the path that you've laid and go like, oh, this is a way that I can be more outspoken and more vocal. What are some of the ways you felt that your activism became bolder once you started, once you quit the job and you were really focused on this is what my work is going to be. This is what my writing is going to center on. You know, I think if there's one thing that I kind of, a rule I kept Mm -hmm. all the time was for, and I still kind of do this sometimes, every piece I wrote, whether it was a Facebook post, a tweet, or an essay, I read it out loud to myself. And if it didn't sound like me, if it didn't sound like something I would say if I was sitting down in front of somebody, I nixed it. And Mm -hmm. I needed to know that I wasn't trying to mimic somebody, that I wasn't trying to 
alter myself to fit, you know, any kind of preconceived notions of what a writer or even an activist needed to sound like. If it wasn't something I felt like my friends, the people I wanted to talk to could understand, if it didn't sound like the way I would say it, I didn't write it. And it, and that also meant, you know, when I was working with editors, if they were trying to edit out my voice and it didn't sound like me anymore, I would push back. But that was kind of a rule I started with where I wanted to look back. You know, I may not always agree with the points I have, right? And I think that's a great sign. You know, I know 10 years from now, I would look at things I've written. I, I'm already looking at things I wrote two years ago. I'm like, oh God, you know, maybe that wasn't quite it. Yeah. It would still sound like me. Like it would sound like me in that time. And I think that there's a lot of pressure right now, especially in talking about social issues, especially on BIPOC people, to say things a certain way, to sound a certain way in order to be heard. And I decided that my voice was all I had. And if it didn't sound like me, I had no value add to this world. I had no perspective that couldn't be immediately replaced. And I just had to remember that even when other people maybe didn't immediately see the value, that I knew what the value of my voice was and refused to kind of be pulled away from that. Yeah. And when we look at activism now, I think so many people want to get involved, but they're not sure how, or they think there's sort of a one size fits all way to being an activist or sort of like, even you can see that certain people, if they speak a certain way, they're listened to. Whereas if other people who don't sort of speak in a a sort of like college educated manner will be easily dismissed. And so I'm wondering if that like might scare off some people from participating in activism because they're like, well, I'm not going to be heard and I feel like I have valid points. And I'm so I'm wondering, like, even in your communities, have you seen any sort of kind of like discontent in the realms of, of activism or do you feel like people are really arms wide open or allowing anyone from any sort of background, any sort of life experience to let their voice be heard? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that we see the similar issues in activism as we see in any kind of social sphere, um, where a tendency towards upholding privilege, um, systems of abuse and oppression, uh, even, you know, around the current activism around Breonna Taylor or George Floyd, we're seeing, I am seeing here in Seattle, the centering of really aggressive male voices over the voices of women and femmes who've been kind of holding down this work for a very long time. I've seen a lot of respectability politics, a lot of, you know, well, this person isn't a lawyer or this person has a record. This person doesn't have secure housing. Why would we listen to what they have to say? A lot of nitpicking around grammar and things like this Mm. that needs to stop. I think that we need to recognize that the voices that should be really centered are the voices of the people who are most impacted by these systems. And often those are going to be voices you're not used to um, holding up as authority because we are we have been kind of trained to think that the people who've made it through these gates are the people we should hear instead of the people like literally being crushed underneath them. And that's really where we, you know, where we need to be focused. I think that I'm always, you know, I'm always telling people who feel like they don't have a space that I will never, ever, ever, I think in my lifetime, get to the point where I'm like, oh, we have too many Black voices talking about this issue, right? Oh, yeah. no, what, another Black disabled woman talking about race? What? Oh, you know, too much. <laughs> like, we're not going to get to that point. So I need everyone to be speaking up. Like, I need mm-hmm. everyone to know that their viewpoint adds something rich. Every BIPOC person, their viewpoint adds something rich to this discussion that's necessary, even if 
even if only five people agree with you, that viewpoint still adds because we are we have been silenced and cut out of even our own conversations around race for so long that it all matters. Like we will we will get a much clearer picture of what's happening the more voices that we have. Um, but at the same time, we also have to rec- recognize that we have to build a space that is safe for marginalized BIPOC voices. And so, yes, every voice needs to be heard, but we also have to recognize the silencing effect of putting a trans misogynist front and center, right? Putting a sexist front and center, putting an abuser front and center and realizing like their experience is valid, their experience counts, but we will not let that voice be the one that we center at, you know, and putting at risk the voices of so many other more marginalized people within our movements. So I just want people to remember that. I want people when they're feeling like, oh, you know, who's going to listen to me? And I hear that all the time. People reach out to me all the time and say, no one's going to want to hear me. I don't have, you know, the right way to say things. Is when's the last time you heard someone like you? When's the last time mm-hmm. you turned on TV, read an article and heard a voice that sounded like you? If, if you can, if, you, if it takes you a minute, if it takes you five, then you need to be heard no matter how it sounds, like your voice is absolutely valid. Yeah, that's really a beautiful sentiment. I hope people really hear that and really go go for it because you're so absolutely right. And it, it makes me think about sort of like we have, I think people at a certain level think like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to speak out. I'm going to, you know, whether it's like lend my platform, pass the mic, or I'm going to speak out myself. And they think like, well, that's, that's the work and I'm done. Like that's all I have to do. And so the the fact of the matter is there's much more work that needs to be done. And especially speaking to what you're talking about in terms of respectability, respectability politics and who, who gets the microphone and who does it. And, I'm wondering if people are like, don't want to do that work because then that is going to bring into focus maybe their own biases that they have. Is that, do you feel that as well? Absolutely. I see a lot of pushback where people are like, oh, this is a distraction. This isn't where we should be focused on. And really what they're saying is, is I don't want that spotlight on me. And I don't want to I don't want to have to notice the adjustments I have to make. It's really easy for the work we do to be externally focused, especially in activism work, to be like, you're the bad person, you're doing the wrong thing. I think it's really much more useful for us to actually look at what we're doing and our role in community, because that's where we have power, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have been oppressive, where we may have even been abusive, that's because we had power over other people. Our chance of making a positive difference by addressing that as we go along our work is much higher than actually trying to get more powerful systems than us to hear us. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And if we all did that, the impact would be huge. But yeah, it's super painful. And especially I think ego plays a lot of part of this. You know, ego, um, we build our personalities, we build our reputations around the work we do. The moment kind of people start doing the work, it's like, oh yeah, I'm a good person. I'm an activist. I'm doing this. I've read these books. You know, I can quote these people, you know, and then someone says, hey, you also really hurt me, you know, Mm -hmm. or hey, maybe you're not the center of this part. Could you open up a little bit and shift over to make room for someone else? And then your pride gets hurt. And then you start wondering, like, is this going to cost me my rep? Am I really the activist Mm. that I thought I was if I, you know, address these issues or address them improperly? Or, you know, what if 
what if this person takes all of the spotlight and then I never get seen again or heard again? Mm. And we have to recognize then like, what is our commitment actually? Right. And I think that we always have to recognize the underlying like moral arguments of our work because we will set goals without being clear about the moral argument, like the why. And then once the goal is achieved, we're done. Or if another moral imperative seems to be in conflict with our goal, we fight it, even though mm. it's a very, you know, important issue that we must address. And so we have to be really clear what our morals are and then seek the ways in which our own actions kind of keep us from, you know, really living that out. Yeah. And so you have kids. And so I can only imagine what it's like to be in your household and just them seeing your example growing up as like, oh, this is a way that I can be in the world. And do you think that like you, what lessons do you think they, they took from you when they were seeing you be outspoken, you writing, you committing, you know, you be, you uh, committing yourself to the causes and real ways is outside of just social media. Oh man. You know, I have kids like my, especially my younger one, they just argue with me all the time. Like, and it's so <laughs> annoying. It's so annoying because like, who, why, why are you like this? And they just, you know, stare at me and they're like, you're why I'm like this. You're why I argue with you all the time because I'm not going to just, you know, take, because I said so as an answer, because that's not how you raised us. And it's really frustrating. And I am filled with regret every single day, but they, <laughs> you know, they have their own ideas and they have a really good moral base that I'm really proud of. And it's interesting to watch them kind of branch off on their own. You know, I, I was absolutely that annoying parent and still am that won't let anything slide, you know, any, like we'll watch a commercial and I'll be like, cause let's talk about how sexist this commercial is. And they're like, Oh my God, mom, why <laughs> we just, you know, we just want to watch the show, you know, but it matters because I see them pick it up. You know, I see my son playing video games with his friends and I'll hear him be like, hey, that language is inappropriate, dude. You're going to get kicked out if, you know, you keep demeaning women in this in this game, you know, while they're like shooting aliens on the TV and stuff like this, you know. And um, it matters to me. But they're totally different about it, right? They have their own opinions on the best way to go about it, you know. And, of course, they're teenagers, right? So they they have, you know, they've learned from me, but also feel like they have very little use for anything I have to say. <laughs> right. And so we have these debates, like debates about protest strategy. And, you know, they, they get really exasperated with me and oh, mom, so annoying, you know? Um, but it's really fun to watch them. I'll catch them, you know, cause they often, you know, this is my job. So they're not like, yay, mom, let's talk politics today. Usually they'll ask me some questions. They know if they need an audience, I'm here but I'll catch them on Facebook, like just in the trenches, like having these battles <laughs> about like abortion rights, you know? And I'm like, Oh, look at these points. And I'm like, where did you learn this? I, yeah, I didn't say this part, you know, they've got stats <laughs> and data and, uh, and it's funny because I thought, you know, in some ways they rebel against me and they, they're so tired of me talking about this all of the time. And I have to balance. Cause I think I like realized the other day, like, Oh, you know, my 12 year old probably doesn't want to talk about like, racial justice at dinner every single day. Like maybe he wants to talk about the Beatles because he's really into the Beatles. And when he asked me my favorite music, I probably shouldn't pick like, talk about how every album is political and all music is political, you know? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe put a little levity into our day, you know? <laughs> but, you know, I think that they're finding their own way and it's really beautiful to see. And I, you know, 
just try to give them the, like they have the general rules of like, be kind, don't harm other people, you know, be open to correction um, that I keep stressing and the rest, you know, who knows? And so that's a good point I want to talk about is sort of having levity and having those lighter moments. Is I think a lot of times when people think about activism, it's like you're in the weeds every day and you come home and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're like, well, I'm going to sleep and then tomorrow I'm going to get up and fight again. And I think people sort of miss out on the point where like you also need to take a break. You also have to fill yourself up with positivity and and not have your only focus be changing the world. And so I'm wondering for someone like you, who I'm sure you get bombarded all the time with like requests for emotional labor and all other sorts of things where it requires you to give, give, give. How do you sort of center yourself and and have these moments where you can be lighter or just be at peace and not have to think about the world? It's hard. I'm, I was not, I'm not great at it. Um, you know, I started to realize even earlier this year, like February, that I had really lost my sense of like self-care um, because I was physically falling apart. Like I thought I thought I was like going into menopause. I was like, what's going on with my body? Went to the doctor, had all these tests, you know, and the doctor was like, Joma, like, let's talk about trauma here. Let's talk about like mm. being a black woman who who's regularly targeted by white supremacists, who's been through all these traumatic events. And then your day-to-day job, like you go to work and this is your work. And then at home, you're still a black woman. You're turning on the news and you're in a pandemic. And I was like, oh, oh, I was like, nah, like my body's not that weak. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> we'll run more tests. Something else is wrong. There's no way. Like, you know, I'm not new to this. And then once the, like thought crept in, I was like, wait, maybe, well, maybe. Um, mm. I started to realize like, oh, you know, I haven't been taking care of myself and my body is really, really desperately trying to tell me like you are a person too who matters and you, you have to take care. Um, and, you know, so I had to like kind of go back to like what I keep telling other people because I'm constantly trying to like reach out to other people I know doing the work and, you know, give advice. And so for me, I had to remember that like, I am one of the black people I'm fighting for, you know? Mm. And so I can't be lost in this fight and that there has to be time when I'm not doing this and I have to do my best to create a space for community. One thing that, you know, I was talking with my friend, Christine Platt about, we were talking about kind of the colonization of self-care, right? This idea that is kind of wrapped up in white supremacist capitalism, that self-care is like, I went to the spa or I bought this luxurious robe or, you know, did these things. But who I am as a Black person, as a Nigerian American, like what's in my blood is community, right? So my mm-hmm. self-care ends up being more community care. It ends up being like quality time with my family, with my friends, reaching out, giving back to community um, and getting kind of that same energy in return and honoring that, you know, and really getting back to the core of who I am. And so I I had to realize that like a spa day was never in the cards for me. Like that was not going to be relaxing for me. Um, And I think that's the same for many other people, especially people of color. But like what was going to give me life and keep me going was even just a Skype conversation 
with a few of my fellow black friends, you know, Mm -hmm. or uh, a walk through the woods with my family and making that time, especially I think when I'm telling myself I can't, that's when I need it the most. When you're like, Oh, Mm -hmm. don't have time. Don't have the energy. Maybe later, maybe when this, when this crisis is over, it's never going to be over. And that moment when you feel like you have nothing, you can't do anything but the work, you have to take that break. You have to put it in there because that's basically a signal that you're doing nothing else and you're really overtaxing yourself. And we forget that our brain is a muscle. We forget that when we are stressing ourselves, that we are stressing our bodies as well. And we have to do things to give back. I love that. I'm glad that you're able to kind of be in a space where you're like, okay, I'm going to take better care of myself because the work that you do is so taxing. Um, Before we get into audience questions, I want to talk really briefly about local politics, because I think that it's something that a lot of listeners as well as myself are sort of kind of understanding like, okay, these are the ways I can be more active locally in in the political realm. Like I can, you know, brush up more on this information as opposed to like waiting till the night before I'm supposed to vote and then like doing a quick Google search and being like, who should I vote for? Okay, great. Which Mm -hmm. is like not the same as like actually like being engaged. And so I'm wondering about like what your experience has being engaged in local politics in Seattle. Yeah. You know, I have been, it's interesting for me because I hold a unique space as like a public figure where I kind of always want to reserve the right to call out anybody at any time. Right. And also, you know, people seek like endorsements and things like that. They're awkward. And so what I'm always trying to do is actually look for opportunity in local politics. So I am looking less towards, I mean, there are of course certain politicians that I feel like are amazing and I'm like, you know, vote for this person support this person. But for the most part, I'm looking for opportunities for community to, to act and trying to throw my support behind that and, and bring awareness to that. So a lot of what locally I've been focused on is around policing, right? Um, so, you know, some of where I've made some of my really good activists and political friends have been around efforts, you know, like a few years ago, we were trying to, the city was trying to build a huge new precinct, the most expensive in the country, but we've been under consent decree, you know, since way before um, Mike Brown was killed. Right. And that process is, we're still in it and have the police have not fulfilled any of, you know, really a lot of their obligations towards us to reduce abuse and bias. And they wanted to build a $250 million police precinct. Um, and, you know, that bringing my kids, you know, bringing the community, we, we showed up at city council meetings, we show up at protests. Um, and it took, you know, a months, 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 months to finally actually defeat that new precinct. And we did, um, you know, we just finally saw some victory around the youth jail and that protests. I was looking through my photos and I had pictures of my kids and there are no new youth jail shirts from like four years ago. Um, just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the county said that they were going to, tr- they were going to close down the youth jail and no longer wow. hold, um, you know, um, our youth there. And the, you know, that effort that wouldn't have happened if people hadn't shown up. It wouldn't have happened if every protest, even now, even after, you know, the murder of, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that there wasn't also closed the youth jail listed in every demand for, you know, local protesters, right? If it wasn't brought up in every city council meeting and people recognizing like, hey, even if it doesn't happen right away, even if it takes five years, 
it's a huge impact for all of the mm-hmm. young people who are going, you know, who would have been locked in that system. And to shut that down, to reallocate those resources towards keeping families together and getting resources to our families, especially knowing, you know, that a disproportionate amount of these youth are black and brown children um, that were being locked away. You know, doing those sorts of things, we just got a commitment from our city council for a 50 percent reduction in police budgeting. You know, we're, we've gotten cops out of Seattle schools, you know, um, all of these sorts of things really, really matter. And so I want people to realize that, like, even in their city, no matter how small their city, there are things they can start with. And if you think, oh, we probably can't defund police in my city right now. Can you get cops out of schools, right? Can you get a commitment to reduce suspensions and expulsions in your schools, right? What can you do about, you know, bail in your area? What can you do, you know, all these sorts of things that you can do to kind of increase equity? Um, what can you do to get investments in neglected minority majority areas of your town, right? Um it's really fun to bring those opportunities to people who maybe thought, oh, that sucks. I can't do anything. Well, you can call, you can email, you can show up at, at these meetings, you know, and really be heard and make a big difference. Oh, wow. You are, you're so damn impressive. I swear to God. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so, okay. I want to move on to my favorite part of the show, which are audience questions. Uh, we have about five and I think they're really good. They're kind of, you know, there's a couple that are like, oh, okay, that was interesting. So I think that we'll have like a good time sort of talking uh, through some of these comments. Um, okay. So I will start with Mallory from Minnesota. She writes, how do I bring activism work into my workplace and help others see the importance of this work? For example, I want to be a school guidance counselor currently in grad school. And I often have gotten dismissed in past jobs when requesting trainings or recentering conversations about change to social justice topics. Ooh, that's tough. That's really tough, right? It really is. And I would say one thing that I find helps is a co- there's a couple of different approaches you can take. You know, if you are a BIPOC person, especially looking at this work, because honestly, those are the people most at risk talking about these issues, right? Um, find allies who have power, who say they, these things matter and talk to them and ask for their assistance, ask for their backup. A lot of times just having that person with a little bit of power say, oh, I agree with this, um, you know, can really go a long way. Um, if, you know, one thing I would say is to pick one step of the system that might be holding BIPOC people back. So look at your hiring process, look at your, you know, um, the way you're setting up company events, you know, look at your training process, right? Look at your review process, find one step that might be in the way of employees of color and focus on that one and then get people to support it. Because if you can speak to that one issue, talk about why it matters, get other people to say, oh yeah, that's good. And it's not, you're not asking for the moon. I find that focusing on the process works better than focusing on like a training. You know, mm-hmm. studies are actually showing that a lot of these trainings don't work. They don't work. Just like Why is that second, though? They don't work because A, it immediately builds resentments mm-hmm. um, and resentment that actually pushes people away from doing the work. And also because it actually makes it feel like these things are up for debate in a way that they're not. The way that I really feel when we're talking about bias, 
when we're talking about racist behavior, that's not something you train now. That's something you say, this isn't appropriate. This is what is appropriate and what is not. Don't do this or you will be fired or you will be written yeah. up or this is the process that will happen if you do these things. You know, I, I try to tell people there's a reason why we don't go punching our coworkers in the face, even though we really want to. Right. <laughs> it's because we know it will cost us our jobs. And there's a reason why people can say racist things to their coworkers whenever they want. And they know it won't be a big deal because they know at worst they're going to have to sit through a boring movie on why racism is bad. Right. So mm-hmm. I don't actually believe that. The, the standard DEI approach of we're all going to watch this film, we're all going to try to empathize with BIPOC employees, it actually does anything for people who don't already know that this is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, what mm-hmm. I think helps is recognizing what the offensive behaviors are and saying this behavior is unacceptable and this is what happens if you continue this behavior. This is the process that with which we deal with racial aggression. This is the process with which we deal with racial discrimination. This is how we define it. And this is how we figure it out and what happens. And so I think that if, you were, if you're looking to make a difference in your workplace, outside of pushing around real processes, find that one issue. And people will actually, I think oftentimes are more likely to get behind that one thing than the thought of like, oh, I have to sit through another horrible HR thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, no, you're telling me all I have to do is maybe change up the way we recruit people. Oh, okay. Like I can have that conversation. I can have a conversation around biased recruiting, right? Um, I can have a conversation about maybe how our review process has bias written into it. You know, I can have a conversation maybe about how we're structuring our meetings in a way that may make it uncomfortable for women and BIPOC people to speak up. Like focus on that one thing, mm-hmm. figure out, do your research, figure out all the benefits of changing it and the ways in which you can get some allies and present that and just take it one solution at a time. Oh, okay. Good luck, Mallory. That's really good. Cause I think sometimes people want to try and, and tackle everything and then it just becomes too overwhelming. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think the corporations need to tackle everything, right? Mm-hmm. Corporations mm-hmm. absolutely need to, they need to be doing it all because in the meantime, their employees are suffering, but for individuals. Yeah. Like there's only so much one person can do, but getting one thing done right is better than failing everything. Right. And yeah. Someone else maybe will be inspired by what you're doing. And that's one thing I have definitely figured out in workplaces is you make a change. People are like, oh, great change. And suddenly someone's like, well, I want to make a change too, you know, and and that can become something that kind of spreads throughout the environment. It becomes a thing you do, you know, a positive way to really enact change for equity that other people really want to get in on. Okay, great. Um, Oh, this is a good one. This is from, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Nani in Brooklyn, New York. Um, The question is, how can Black women make their voice heard and become more civically engaged? It seems like there's often a high cost of entry and the entry is deeply based on status. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I would say it's status, it's color. Right. Like mm-hmm. I think like my entry into this space as a light skinned black woman was definitely a lot easier than it has been for darker skinned black women. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I speak growing up in Seattle with college education, of course, eased my way into this space mm-hmm. and it can be really, really difficult. And I would say first and foremost, Whatever your interests are, find a space online first is always usually best that aligns with your interests. It exists. Like if you like think of who you are, think if you could surround yourself with people who would enrich you 
like intellectually and emotionally who would support you and who would get you find that space first Mm -hmm. so that you have that support network for your voice so that you have the people who are going to up you when you need that. You have the people who are going to counsel you when you need that, who are going to comfort you when you need that. And it exists. Be specific. I, you know, when I tell people like, no, trust me, just start Googling it, start asking around, look, you know, get on online on Facebook, find, search through groups. You're going to find that like black nerd sci-fi fan group that also <laughs> loves politics, right? Like, and you're, you can be there. You're going to find that like QTPOC group. That's not going to misgender you, right? And you can learn and grow and get confidence in your voice and you will have a space to go back to because when you get out into the world, the world will try to convince you that no one is like you, that your voice isn't valid, that you know you don't have anything to add and you need a control group that says, wait a minute, since when? You know, like absolutely mm-hmm. you matter and what you're saying is great. Here's some more information people you can run things by. So find that support network first and then get your voice out there and make sure that your support group knows your voice is out there. Don't hide it. A lot of times we become, we step out really secretly. And I know people who will like publish whole essays and not tell anyone in their life they wrote this essay. And instead Mm. what you need to be doing is saying, Hey, you know, this is, this really matters to me. I would love to get your support and feedback, get that community support for your words to get it out there. Um, have that control group that will push back against that really harmful messaging that tries to tell you you don't deserve to be there. Yeah. And I think I wonder if sometimes there is that fear of like, you're going to lose, you know, the community that you currently have, like the way like you like lost a lot of those friends where, but then once you got beyond that, you're like, well, that was probably for the best because those weren't the right people for me. So it's sort of getting, being able to just know that you're going to get on the other side of whoever you lose or were people that shouldn't have been in your life in the first place. Absolutely. Right? And like yeah. the truth is, is that when you insist on being a whole person in your life and in your relationships, you absolutely lose people who weren't signed up for that, who thought they were in a relationship with someone else. But everyone else that comes into your life knows what they're getting. And the footing, the security you have, it's not going to be perfect. You'll still have issues, Mm -hmm. but your ability to navigate those issues, to work things out, to build trust is so much improved. If you just say, no, this is me, you know, and this is what I tolerate and not, this is what I expect from relationships and being my friend, being my community member means hearing and caring about what's impacting me as a person. Yeah. Okay. So this next question is, Oh, this is kind of a doozy. I'm like, okay, how are we going to talk about this? Okay, but let me just read it and then we can go from there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this question is from Tony in Nashville. Um, Okay, I have a couple of friends who are API and light-skinned Latinx who in trying to embody principles of transformative justice as we work towards liberation, expect me, a white woman, LOL, ugh, um, which come on, you don't have to do all that. Um, expect me to read, you know what I mean? It's like, we I don't, don't want, yeah, we, don't, yeah, we don't want white people to be like, I'm a piece of shit. Like that's not what we're, what it, it's about at all. Yeah. You know what I say? That doesn't raise my credit score. I don't care. It doesn't <laughs> Ooh, you know? I love that. That doesn't raise my credit score. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. So expect me a white woman to reach out and listen slash 
um, hold space and spend money on them while they do not think they need to do the same in return. As in, they won't do emotional labor for me, even unrelated to race, because having to invest emotional labor in a, in a white person is triggering for them. Okay, whew. while I totally get why they have come to those expectations, white supremacy is insidious and deadly and gaslighty a gajillion percent, I don't feel cared about in these two relationships, even after talking to, even after talking to them about it. I feel more like their token white friend slash therapist slash seamless fairy godmother than their friend. Obviously, we can't take our relationships out of context, but I wonder if identity politics, uh oh, are <laughs> I'm like, uh oh, um, are playing too big of a role in and trying to pay reparations through interracial relationships is empty and draining instead of a nourishing mutual relationship. Is that not a whole lot of a question? It's a whole lot. It's a whole yeah. lot. There's a couple of things I would say. One mm-hmm. is I would, I'm going to kind of say that we likely have somewhat of an unreliable narrative here, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, it could be a weird, bizarro friendship that's like, you owe me your white, give me things and I will never give you anything in return. Okay. Well, that's, that sounds like a shitty friendship. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that I absolutely believe in reparation. Um, and I think that we give reparation, we should give reparations that have nothing to do with our personal relationships. We give reparations because we benefited in, you know, general from systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. And that's how you give reparations. Um, and so it's not necessarily your friends that you would look to like give you things. I would absolutely say that it is important to have boundaries in interracial friendships as to what is draining and what is giving, right? And to recognize that when it comes around conversations of race, you know what? I am absolutely fine with white people feeling drained at the end of those conversations because you don't actually have to feel drained any other time. You get to go through all of your day not feeling drained by being a white person. Mm -hmm. And oh, well, okay, you have to hold a little space for your friends and you feel drained at the end and they don't good because it's usually the opposite. They're walking around feeling drained all of the time. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is the one chance they get to not. And that is fine. That is actually something you do for friends. But I would also say that you do need to be, a friendship is something that everyone gets something out of. And maybe having a conversation is to, you know, think, what do I get out of the friendship? And if you're in that friendship, you're getting something out of it, right? So what am I getting out of it? And I would say, look at that, because you would not be in it if you weren't getting something. Whether or not what you're getting out of it is healthy is a totally different discussion. What do I want to get out of it? Speak it plainly. Hear what they want and ask, you know, how do you define friendship with me, a white woman? What do you want to get out of this friendship? And see, does it work? Can I give this thing and can I get this thing? And see if there's a compromise to be had. And if not, it's okay for a friendship to not work. You're not off the hook for the racial justice work you have to do. You're not off the work off the hook for having to give reparation in general. And none of this actually really has to do with identity politics. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is, whatever difference in expectations, whatever difference in need people have, they have because of their lived experiences, their whole lived experiences as people, including their racial and ethnic identity. And taking identity politics out of it isn't going to change that. It isn't going to change the fact that chances are that these two 
people of color are feeling incredibly drained day in and day out in their relationships with white people. It's not going to change the fact that white people still have a lot of work to do to really catch up and to be sensitive and hold safe space for their friends of color. Um, it's just now we have language to describe it. Some people will take advantage. It's rare. Yeah. It's really rare. And I think it's especially rare in these in these situations because the power dynamic is still going to favor whiteness. So really look at that and say, what do I want in this friendship? Am I getting what I want out of this friendship? Have I communicated what I want out of this friendship? What do they want? Have they communicated? Because you may also be really misunderstanding mm -hmm. what it is you need or what it is they want. And yeah, they may need a listening session occasionally where they hear, you know, where you hear them when they're talking and they may not need your input. And then they might want to chill out and go to a movie. You know, they might want to have, you know, a fun time, but ask, you know, what does it look like to you? What does friendship with me look like and see if it's compatible? Yeah. And I think we also have to sort of just get rid of the phrase identity politics because I think it's just so dismissive and it so misses the point about what people of color, queer people, disabled people, you know, what everyone is talking about. It's not about just leaning on like, I'm a black woman, so like give me everything or excuse all of my behavior. It's about recognizing that everyone's experience is different based on the way that they look. And yeah. if we remove the phrase identity politics, all we have is whiteness and whiteness is an identity and it's a political identity. And people mm -hmm. like to act like it's exempt from that. They want it, what they're basically saying when people say they want to get rid of identity politics is they want to go back to when they never had to think about identity because everything suited them as white people and usually white mm -hmm. men. That's still identity politics. That just happens to be identity politics that's so pervasive that you don't have to name it. You know, yeah. and so I think we need to realize that there is no there is no neutral default when it comes to identity, when it comes to human lived experience. There isn't. And we've been raised to think that at the end of it all, we all experience the same thing. We all want the same things. We all need the same things. And that's total bullshit. It's not true mm -hmm. at all. At the end of the day, we are very different people shaped by the worlds we grew up in. We have different <laughs> needs, different wants, different relationships. And it's all valid and beautiful. And we have to be able to talk about it. Damn, drop that damn mic, Ijeoma. <laughs> drop it. Okay, we just have two more questions left. Um, oh, this is really cute. Okay, I like this. This is from Anonymous. Um, Ijeoma, thank you for all the work you're doing. I can only imagine how taxing it must be to constantly be asked questions about anti-racism, but here I am, LOL. Like you, I'm a parent. I have two kids, age nine and 12, and I'm curious because as much as I want to encourage my kids to be activists, I also want to preserve their innocence for a little bit longer. Any tips on how to walk this fine line? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say a couple of things. One, I'm going to guess that's a white parent because that's not a question I think that black parents especially ask because that innocence is shattered by the world, like immediately. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to remember that, that your kids' peers are already experiencing racial oppression and racism day in and day out. So that innocence shouldn't exist. And chances are it doesn't. What, what is existing right now is a vacuum that's being filled by media, by internet, mm -hmm. that you aren't actually responsibly taking hold of. Your kids are learning about race and racism and they're answering their own questions based on questionable sources because you're not stepping up. So it is really important actually that we talk about what's happening and make it age appropriate 
Talk about what's happening maybe to other kids your kid's age. Talk about the environment your kids are in and where they have power. One, one of the, my favorite things to do to encourage young activism, especially for those ages, is to get your kids to look at the social circles they're in, look at their classrooms, look at their peer groups, and recognize the power they have within there to make a real difference. Ask them about their friends. Ask them about the kids of color in their classroom. And say, how are they doing? Do you know if they're safe and comfortable? Is your teacher reading books that reflect people who look like them, right? And mm -hmm. say, what can you do? You know, what can you do with your friends to have these conversations? What can you do if you hear a kid say something that's racist? Let them know that the environment they're in matters and that they have a responsibility to their peers. Because a lot of times, you know, I like to say that we would never raise a kid without putting him in a math class and say he's going to be an engineer when he grows up. But we raise our kids without ever teaching them how to be anti-racist and then say they're going to be anti-racist when they grow up. Mm. They have to practice. They have to know what to expect from society. And you shape that expectation by telling them how you expect them to fulfill their roles. They're not going to just turn 18 and suddenly know what to do. And it also makes the world less scary. They're reading the news. Mm. They're reading the headlines. They're seeing what's happening. They're very afraid of what adults are doing and how adults are messing this up. And letting them know that at least in their classrooms or at least in their friend groups, they can make a positive change is really empowering and it makes the world a lot less terrifying. Ooh, that was great advice. Okay. Anonymous. I hope you were listening. <laughs> um, and our last question is, this is a really nice one. Um, Juliana from Reno, Nevada. She wants to know how does someone who hates conflict get better at speaking their mind and I think that is even not just anti-racism conversations. I just think in general, conflict scares a lot of people, right? Because you're afraid of it's uncomfortable. You're afraid that like you guys aren't going to like each other anymore, that mm -hmm. this version of you that the other person has seen you as will be shattered. And mm -hmm. I know for me, like one of the things that's um, key is if ever I had to have sort of an uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversation with someone, I will run it by like my friends and mm -hmm. like my boyfriend and just sort of talk it out and be like, these are all the sort of possible scenarios that can happen if I say X, Y, Z. So mm -hmm. that way, at least going into it, like I'm not controlling the narrative, but I'm at least prepared for, okay, if a person responds this way, it's not going to throw me off my game. Mm -hmm. And I can still mm -hmm. feel like it's it, it was worth it for me to express myself. Because what you don't want to happen is you just hold everything inside and then nothing ever gets resolved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would say to add on to that, know what success might look like for you. So a lot of times mm -hmm. I think when we're like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. And we like get psyched up and we're like, blah, 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 blah. And then people are like, what the fuck? And then you're like, <laughs> oh, well, this sucks, right? Like you had no idea what was going to happen. You didn't know what mm -hmm. you were going to get out of them. You didn't know what you wanted out of this conversation. You just had to psych yourself up to say because you knew you needed to say something. And then when people are like, what am I supposed to do with this? You're like, I don't know. And then it falls <laughs> apart, right? And so I always say like when you're having an important conversation, especially one that you know might, you know, become tense, be like, okay, what would, if I was to leave this and say, oh, I'm so glad I had that talk, what would happen? Because mm -hmm. one of the first things that often throws people off is you blurt out what you're saying and people go, what do you want from me? And you're like, I don't know, you know, um, you know, or people get upset because they think they're being accused and there's nothing they can mm -hmm. do but take the accusation. And even if you need someone to know they've done something wrong, 
there's a reason why usually it's not just, I want you to feel bad today. It's I need you to change your behavior or I need you to see this so that we can move forward. Um, So no, like, okay, if, if this ended, we talked this out, what would our relationship look like after this? If it was successful, what would come from this conversation? It was successful. Knowing that is going to give you strength. It's going to stop people from being able to pull you away from your points mm. because you're like, no, actually, this is what I mean. Because people, oh, you just want me to feel bad. No, I don't. I want this. I need yeah. this. This is why we're, you know, why I wanted to have this conversation. And it will help you kind of steer the conversation in the right way. And also, if someone's willing to talk to you and they say, well, well what do you want me to do? You have something to say with that. Um, and it also will help you know if someone is really, you know, acting in bad faith. And they're joining in that conversation and they have no intention whatsoever of coming to a resolution. You'll know because you know what success looks like. You vocalize what it looks like. And they're in no way willing to even attempt to meet you there. Well, I got to say, this has been an amazing hour. I'm always so, I always get so nervous talking to you just to be fully honest. I'm like, you're just so smart and you're so wonderful and you're so necessary in the world. And I just am always so grateful that you can make the time to chat. And I think as we're going through the next months, years of whatever this country or the world is going to end up looking like, I think people like you are always going to keep showing Um, us the way and always keep like encouraging us to then keep doing the work as well, because it's not just to put all the pressure on you. It's for all of us to be like, oh, this is what we can do based off what we see. Um, so I thank you so much for joining me today on Black Frazier. If you guys have not picked up your copy of So You Want to Talk About Race, do it now. <laughs> and you have another book coming out. Yes, I do in December. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. What's it's it called? Exciting. It's called Mediocre, Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. So it'll be <laughs> oh, pretty straightforward title, I guess. <laughs> that is the best title ever. <laughs> well, babe. Talk about supersized episode. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Not going to lie. Well, up there. I'm impressed. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, since this episode's long, I'm just going to get straight into, you know, the Black-owned business. As you guys know, we want to support Black-owned businesses, so each episode we shout one out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so today... Today's Black-owned business is Melanin Hair Care. Ooh, good name. So fantastic. I use what <clears throat> I want to get the exact name of this the hair oil that I use. It is the Melanin Multi-Use Pure Oil Blend. I use it all the time. Every day. I got I put that stuff on. It I, I live by it. I swear by it. It's like hands down my fave. So iconic. You can follow them. You go to their website, www.melaninhaircare.com. I believe um, Whitney, who owns the, the this company, they just got into Ulta Beauty, Ooh, which is huge. That's really big. Um, and if you want to follow them on Instagram, you guys know what I'm about to do. Uh, link is in the description <clears throat> below. So if you guys want to follow them on Instagram, Melanin Hair Care, that's M- as in Mercy, E as in Eagle Scout, 
L as in lieutenant. Ooh. A as in aspiration. N as in nuance. I as in... Inspector. Oh, Inspector! N as in never. H as in Harold. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask who Harold is. A as in avenue. I as in irrepressible. R as in rumination. C as in... Core blimey. <laughs> this has gone on very long. A as in apple. R as in... Oh, what's an R word? Uh... Oh, Robinson. That's my last name. And E as in Elijah, Book of Elijah. Wasn't that a Denzel? Oh, no, it was Book of Eli. It was a Denzel Washington yeah. movie. Was it Eli short for Elijah? Sure. To repeat, that is... <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Go to melaninhaircare.com, you guys. As always, you've been fantastic. I think it's time for credits, babes. What you think? Credit time. Host, Phoebe Lynn Robinson. Producers, Phoebe Lynn Robinson, British Bake Off. Editor, British Bake Off. Theme song, Gavin Turek. Interns, Sasha and Malia Obama. Just because you speak it in every week doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> 